Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Good afternoon, Joe. Seb Stafford Bloor. Hi, Joe. And the magnificent Phil Hay. I don't know about magnificent, but good afternoon, everybody. I do know, as does everyone listening. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil. We're really pleased to have you here. And for listeners uh, and lead supporters who've been begging us to have Phil on for a while, we are doing uh, leads today as part of a Sensible Transfers episode. But Phil is going to join us again in uh, in a few weeks' time so that we can do a, a, a proper uh, chat about leads uh, regarding everything else other than transfers. Before we get started today, though, I would like to remind you that if you like uh, TIFO's Sensible Transfer series, you can find editorial pieces written about uh, almost every club in the Premier League, uh, some in the Championship and some uh, in the, the Scottish Premier League as well, on The Athletic. Uh, and if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers, you can get 40% off an annual subscription, which works out to be about £3 a month, I think. Uh, and uh, you can read all of those pieces or indeed just read all of Phil's work uh, and uh, enjoy yourself every day of the year. But for now, uh, I will leave you in uh, the, the, the cool hands and the warm embrace of Phil Hay. Okay, uh, we're going to start with Leeds United while we have Phil here. Um, and I would like to start by getting a little bit of background information from you, Phil. Um, the first question really is just what is the club's philosophy likely to be uh, in this first season? Because, you know, survival is obviously the first objective. But do we have any sense of what the club's real aim is and how much they'd be willing to spend chasing it? Budget wise, I think they'll be falling into the bracket of 50 to, to 75 million in terms of the money that they're going to put up for, for transfer fees. And, and I think they're going to have to stretch to that level to get the, the calibre of centre back and, and centre forward, certainly, that, that they're after. You're right about survival, and that kind of goes without saying any time a, a club goes up. I, I think probably more so with Leeds, given that this has been 16 years of waiting. Um, for promotion and and sixteen hard years as well. It's been a, a very very long, difficult and and in periods very unhappy journey for them up until the the BLC era. Uh, and I think survival will be seen by them as a as an adequate benchmark, but probably a quite a low benchmark as well. There are grander plans at play um, at Leeds and, and at Ellen Road, and and one of them, for example, is the the plan to redevelop the West Stand, um, which has, has been there for, for years and years and is fairly decrepit, um, but crucially is, is keeping the capacity of the stadium down at, at 35,000. If they were to redevelop that into comparable size to the East Stand over the other side of the pitch, you'd be talking um, about a, a capacity of closer to 50,000. And given that they've sold 23,000 season tickets and, and have a waiting list of, of 20,000, um, behind that it's evident that in the Premier League they, they could fill that sort of stadium but what they certainly realise is they cannot throw money at projects like that if they're going to yo-yo or if they're going to be up for one season and then down again and, and stuck back in the EFL it just isn't prudent so I think what they need to see this season is is not only survival but also just that feeling of competence in the Premier League that feeling of, of comfort in those surroundings and of essentially finding their feet and beginning to establish themselves in a way which suggests that they're going to be a Premier League club indefinitely offer a you know a very long stretch as opposed to you know in comparison to to Fulham and and Burnley before them and, and granted Burnley got back up and, and looked more established now but you know in, in comparison to clubs who've come up gone back down and then almost had to to start again yeah you know, it's really interesting with these in fact and we'll come back and talk about the money that's available and and some players in a moment but uh, Alex and Seb and I were discussing this this morning and I remember very clearly Alex saying that Leeds of all uh, the teams that are well being promoted and, and have been promoted in recent seasons, you feel that they could just as easily be relegated as finish sixth or fifth. Uh, and they're sort of impossible to predict uh, for a number of reasons, one of one of which I suppose is, is Marcelo Bielsa. 
what would your expectations be uh, in terms of a league finishing position? Have you got any idea or have you got a feel for it, Phil? I find that as hard to answer as as that suggestion, really. You know, the idea that they could get into trouble, the idea that they could sit very comfortably higher up the league. And, and I think my, my feeling with the Premier League is that if you're defensively organised, which leads that have been under Bielsa to a very strong degree and clearly they, they look like they've they've lost Ben White back to, to Brighton and that changes things at the back but the organisation is fundamentally there I think and, and if you are defensively organised with a team who like to attack a team who are willing to attack and a team who will because it's just Bielsa's philosophy it's in it's in his nature and, and that never bends or, or deviates then I think you've got every chance in the league and I think you've got every chance of being competitive and, and you see every season that it, it really is quite similar to the championship really much of a muchness once you get into the middle of the Premier League it isn't difficult to get sucked into problems at the bottom but equally it isn't difficult to get a little run on a number of other teams and find that post Christmas like Sheffield United this season you, you're comfortably safe and, and have got other things to to concentrate on and, and to look at um, I would like to think that you know something in the region of 13th, 14th, 15th would be would be very possible for Leeds, if, if not better than that. I think what you have to remember is there are so many variables here that so few players who've played in the Premier League before or, or in a way that gives them any sort of meaningful experience of that division. And then even somebody like Pablo Hernandez is going back there for the first time in, in six years. You know, it's, it's a long stretch now since he was a Premier League player. And while he's still got so much ability, it is going to be a case of finding himself again at that level. So we've got a lot to find out about this squad. Um, and a, and a bit to find out about Bielsa as well because again he hasn't worked in, in this division but if you've watched him as I have for two years you'd take a huge amount of confidence from the way in which he, he strolled into the championship and, and started dominating it almost immediately Phil can I ask about Pablo Hernandez as you, as you mentioned him there um, nine goals, nine assists um, it's one of the best seasons of his career last year um, but he is 35 and is there a contingency for um, for what happens if he's not able to replicate that kind of productivity at the at the level above? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, I actually think his, his best season at Leeds was the previous season, Bielsa's first, when it was goals and assists from everywhere all year. And, and despite you know a couple of hamstring strains, um, ended up a really high tally with both and was, was comfortably, you know, one of the leading contenders for, for the Player of the Year award, which he won again this time round. I mean, the last nine games of this season just gone were almost like his time. It was it was like his calling and, and he was a, a real force of nature in that, playing at, at that sort of level. He's, the thing about Hernandez is he's got talent that you can't teach and he does things that you can't teach and, and he does things that players cannot replicate. You know, a lot of players, regardless of how hard they try or, or how much they, they try to practice what he does, it's the nutmegs from five yards away and it's the, the wonderful vision that pulls out some of the most difficult passes that, that remind you why he was a Spain international and he was playing at a very high level with Valencia. Um, but it's quite interesting because I think if you go back to March when lockdown began, I don't think he would necessarily have been the, the, the widespread choice for player of the year. I think people would have looked to others um, for that the, the likes of Luke Ayling or Stuart Dallas or, or Ben White at the back and I think it really was the, the blast of brilliance from Hernandez towards the end of the season that, that put him in line for the Player of the Year award it, it's worth remembering and, and noting that he only started 27 games in this season gone so it would be wrong to say that Leeds are a one-man team and it would be wrong to say that they're excessively reliant on him I think when it comes to those moments where you desperately need some magic or some creativity it is a case of all fingers pointing towards Hernandez again but they will try to sign you know a, a player who can operate as a 10 or, or out wide they, they do have Hilda Costa who more and more has, has filled in and, and played ahead of Hernandez in, in that right-hand area, the right side of midfield where Bielsa loves to use him. And I think centrally as well, Bielsa is more inclined to go with two eights. You know, your Matthias Cleek and, and if he's fit, someone like Adam Forshaw, than he is to to pair up Cleek with Hernandez. But the thing about Hernandez is he's somebody who you want in the team and he's somebody who you want to use as, as much as you can. They're not oblivious to the fact that he's 35, put it that way, but they also see in him an amazing physique and amazing ability to cope with the intensity of the championship. And, and you know, I, th I think he will cope fine in the Premier League as well. But it was always important for Leeds that while they had him in the background, they moved to a point where actually there was more to the team than merely Hernandez's brilliance. Um, and I do think when you look at the, the stats and, and you look at who else contributed last season and the fact that you could have had probably... 
six or seven valid contenders for player of the year, it tells you that he's essential, but he's not essential to the point where they can't do without him. You know who actually who he reminds me of? Um, Paul Merson at Portsmouth in 2002, three, four, something like that. Um, his sort of last hurrah in the, in the championship, absolutely brilliant in that season. Um, but talking about statistics, Phil, um, I know this is going to be a bit of a tired topic, but can we, can we have a, a chat about Patrick Bamford? Because... I feel a little bit sorry for him because I don't think a Leeds' promotion had been confirmed for more than about 24 hours before people were starting to, to debate whether he was actually good enough to play and score goals in the Premier League. Um, 16 goals last season. Um, what's your feeling for next year with him? Because he has had he has had chances before and the, the, these question marks never seem to go away from him no matter how many goals he scores. No, well, the, the debate about whether he is good enough for the Premier League is, is merely an advancement of the debate about whether he was good enough for the Championship. Um, and I think... I have to I have to say I think that argument has been conclusively dealt with on the basis that he's been the centre forward in a team who've won the championship by ten points. He scored sixteen goals in a squad where nobody else really looked like getting into double figures, and and own goals is right up there as one of the leading scorers this season. And and I think crucially as well, he he, he fits the mould that Bielsa looks for in a centre forward. He, he wants a striker who will drop deep and link up with the, the midfielders behind him. He wants a striker who runs the channels. Um, um, and and will graft. He wants a striker as much as anything else who is very good at springing the the high press, which which Bamford is. And you know, I, I constantly get the feeling with Bielsa that yes, it's important that strikers score goals, but that's almost like the last thing that he focuses on when it comes to assessing who it is that he plays up front. You know, it's not a secret that that Bamford's expected goals ratio is much higher than his his actual goals tally. Um, but even back when Bielsa had Eddie Nketiah on loan from Arsenal and Nketiah seemed to be finishing everything that came to him and, and looked like the much more natural goal scorer, there was a, an automatic or a, a sort of ingrained reluctance in Bielsa to abandon Bamford and, and to go with Nketiah. And as Nketiah got more chances and as he started to play up front in Bielsa's specific system, because I know Nketiah's done well down at Arsenal, he, he, he seems to have fitted in well under Arteta, but with Bielsa, it never felt quite right. And you almost got the feeling that when Nketi went in, in January and he stuck with Bamford, that actually he'd been justified in, in doing so for a while. You know, he'd worked out who suited the, the setup better and, and ultimately it was his, his number nine. To answer the question for next season, I mean, I think Bamford will start at Anfield um, for the first weekend of the season. I think that the lineup at um, at Anfield will be very, very similar to the lineup that Bielsa was using, you know, at its strongest towards the end of the season. And, you know, had it been the case that Leeds had been able to get Ben White back from Brighton, you'd probably been talking about the lineup being virtually unchanged if not unchanged completely and and you know that's that's the level of faith that Bielsa has in this team that that was the way he wanted them to transition it was always going to be three four five signings at most it was never going to be a complete reworking or a complete rethink about what they were doing and you know if you're looking for Bamford's biggest supporter Bielsa is probably it you know Bielsa is probably the last person who would look at Bamford and say he doesn't finish enough so I don't want him there's just so much more to Bielsa's tactical thinking than that can I ask what kind of person Patrick Bamford is? Because we, we hear the highlights in the media about his, you know, where he went to school and his musical ability. He seems quite a resilient personality, just in terms of he, he's one of those forwards that doesn't seem to be afraid of missing chances. He can deal with the chatter and the noise that surrounds his position. Um, you've obviously spent a bit of time with him in the mix zones and around the club. What's he like? He's a very likeable guy. And, and I think you're right. I, I, I feel sorry for him in, in the way that whenever... You know his background comes up for discussion. It's all about the the wealth of his family and his kind of privileged upbringing. Which, you know, if if you want to look at it closely and if you want to make assumptions, you can, I guess, you know, you use that to gauge what Bamford's motivation as a professional will be. But I think it, I think it is an assumption, and I think it's fairly cheap way of, of looking at things. He he seems to me as as committed as as any other player. Um, I think he does have natural confidence, although I don't think it's right to say that he's he's able to ignore the focus on him completely. You know, I think he is aware of the chatter around him and I think it can become quite tiresome because it, you know, it is relentless and from time to time he does get into exchanges with supporters on social media where he feels as if the results are great, you know, Leeds are in a 
fantastic league position, but there's still this chirping at him about the fact that he doesn't score as many goals as he should, and and he, you know, he, he misses easy opportunities and and everything else. But I think what you see with him is the advantage of a head coach who who isn't wavering when it comes to selecting him. You know, it, it almost felt that the more criticism there was of Bielsa, the more Bielsa's thinking hardened with regards to backing him and and with regards to supporting him and I'll, I'll say it again you know a, a year or a year and a half of people questioning whether Bamford was good enough and he's played almost every game up front for a side who've finished well, 90 plus points and, and have won the league by by 10 I think you know I, I think it answers itself and I think Bamford will feel like you know he's been vindicated at that level but if you look at his his track record he, he does still have to prove himself in the Premier League that's that's not in question I'm just going to caveat this point by saying that I am fairly new to this conversation and have not followed the Bamford criticism in depth. So if this is a tired comparison, I apologise. Or if it's inaccurate, you'll tell me. But uh, this conversation reminds me of Cameron Jerome, who I think it was 14-15 for Norwich. And then two years later, when Norwich were relegated again, he scored 18 and 16 goals in the championship. And he could just never quite make it uh, at the Premier League level. I, I know that's a very extreme example, but is that something that, that, that crosses your mind at all, Phil? Or is it just is that not a fair comparison? Yeah, but, well, I've never thought specifically about um, Cameron Jerome. I, I don't think it is an unfair comparison in that Cameron Jerome did, did score goals at this level. Um, but I think I think the pool of players who found the leap quite difficult is is fairly high. Um, equally, there are a lot of players who thrive in the Championship and, and have never played in the Premier League who go up to that level and, and actually do very, very well. I, th- I think the reason it's particularly difficult for a, a striker is that it comes back to the fact that you, you judged on your goals. And whereas, you know, in, in other positions on the pitch, you can contribute and look very tidy and, and look, you know, very competent without having the same pressure to chip in in, in that way. It, it you know, it, it is always coming going to come back to, certainly from public perception of, you know, how, how many goals does this guy score? And I think that's been the challenge for everybody at Leeds is to appreciate actually what Bamford does away from his finishing. And, and you know, that does sound a bit counterintuitive because he was a £7 million sign and he's one of the highest earners. He's, he is you know, predominantly there to score goals. But in the Bielsa system, he's predominantly there to lead the attack in the way that Bielsa wants him to. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think he does fall into the bracket of people who have clearly done it in the Championship because he did for Middlesbrough before. You know, he, he is a goal scorer at that level, how, however prolific ultimately that, that proves to be. But yeah, we're going to find out, I think, pretty quickly whether he can cut it properly in that league because I do think he'll, he'll get a good run this time. Listen, let's chat a little bit about the money available. You say the expectation or what is potentially available is between 50 and 75 million. Uh, 23 million pounds, as far as I can see, has been spent already. Uh, you've mentioned Helder Costa uh, and also Joe Gelhar. Ilan Melier's loan has been made permanent and also Jack Harrison has extended his loan from, from Manchester City for another year. So uh, what are the other positions on the pitch that you feel that um, that Leeds and Bielsa will be will be focusing on ahead of, uh, well, I suppose not ahead of now, we're very close to the restart, but um, in the time between and perhaps uh, after the restart, are there, are there obvious areas of, of, of weakness to you or obvious areas that you think that the team will look to strengthen in? Yeah, very much so. Um, obvious areas. I mean, you, you touched on a good point there about you know, trying to get things done before the season starts or potentially afterwards. Um, the slight disadvantage that Leeds have is that your more um, established and settled teams in the Premier League can probably afford to wait for certain deals um, into September and and you know right up to the deadline in October if they need to. If, if it's a case of waiting for um, other clubs to blink and to sell players for Leeds, I mean they they have as a starting point a very obvious hole at centre back now that Ben White has gone back to Brighton um, and that for example is a position that they, they simply have to fill before they, they go to Anfield they've they've tried with White they've tried three times they've had three bids not back from Brighton that was climbed up to the highest bid of, of £25 million up front which would have included you know the usual add-ons appearances um, England debut all, all that sort of thing and the message that's coming back from Brighton is simply that they, they don't want to sell. And, you know, because of that, the time frame is now becoming pretty tight. And, and I'm expecting over this weekend leads to, to look elsewhere and to, to try and make progress on other fronts, particularly with um, Robin Koch, the, the centre-back at Freiburg in Germany. He's been somebody that they've, they've been scouting for a long time, somebody who they very much rate and who they think, um, you know, has similar attributes to White and actually would probably come for a cheaper fee as well so they, they do have fallbacks it's just that I think you know there, there was a deadline put on the on the final bid with White for Brighton to say yay or nay because it has got to that point where they cannot afford in two weeks time to still be messing about with this one unless it is genuinely going to happen 
happen. Um, they need a centre forward. I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about the situation with Jean Kevin Augustine, but he came in on loan from um, RB Leipzig uh, in January, right at the end of the month. Um, and there was a, a provision, a clause in his contract, which said that Leeds would take him permanently if they were promoted, which they obviously have been. Um, Augustine's fitness has been a problem. Um, he, in in the end, was somebody that Bielsa decided he he didn't really want. Um, I don't think his his attitude was a hundred percent perfect, and essentially that is a deal that Leeds no longer want to do. But technically speaking, they're kind of on the hook for about eighteen ninety million pounds with that one, and and it is a, an impasse with Leipzig because Leipzig want the money, um, and as much as the clause to sign him was dated, I believe for the end of May, I think Leipzig's argument would be that in all good faith that clause should be considered to mean if, if Leeds were promoted in the, the 2019-20 season as opposed to, because obviously nobody anticipated the COVID shutdown and, and COVID wasn't an issue at the point where he signed. Um, so the long and short of that is that they need a centre forward. They do like Ollie Watkins um, at Brentford. Uh, they they like um, Batshuayi down at um, at Chelsea, although that one doesn't seem to have made an, an awful lot of progress. Um, and aside from that, they, they do want, Another winger, a number 10, I think. You know, they, they've bid for Ryan Kent at Rangers. Again, first off has been turned down, but they're, they're very tempted to go back with a second. I think he is the sort of footballer who could cover multiple positions. And, and so if they were to get somebody like him, they'd have a you know a winger there. They'd have someone who does play at, at 10, albeit in a, as part of two number 10s with Gerrard at, at Rangers. Um so, you know, they, they don't actually have that many boxes to tick and they don't have that many positions to fill. Uh, but we are talking now three weeks until the season starts and we're yet to see one cross the line at Ellen Road. So, you know, they, they really, really do need to see some progress now. So with Augustine, um, this might have just been idle press box gossip at the time, but I heard some very weird stories about the, his um, his basic wage were he to, to stay at, at Leeds um, with some very inflated figures. How much of a problem would this be if, if Leeds can't um, kind of wind this back uh, with Leipzig? Well, my understanding was that his basic wage at Leipzig was in the region of €90,000 a week. Um, I, I, no, I, I believe that to be true. I, I think that's accurate. And when you think of the sort of club Leipzig are and the, you know, they, they paid £30 million to take him from... Um, from PSG, so it, it, I suspect that's that is is accurate. Um, Leeds have sp- have said to me that you know that, that first of all they still think that they have an argument for for getting out of this deal, and, and they will they will certainly try to do so. I think even if push comes to shove and they're forced to take him, they would try to find another move for him, which I don't think is necessarily going to be easy um, at the level of fee that they were talking about with Leipzig. But he does still have a lot of talent. I mean, Bielsa himself spoke about Augustine and said. You know, if this guy was fit and if this guy was in prime condition and scoring goals, you'd be talking about a 30, 40 million pound striker. You know, that's that's what we'd have on our hands. So there will, I think, be interest in him out there. It's just a case of how much money Leeds could recoup. And I mean, if Leipzig were to be were to find themselves with alternative offers that provided the same amount of cash, then perhaps even they might be tempted to abandon the deal with Leeds and to do something else. But it seems implausible that anybody other than Leeds would, would look to pay that amount of money given how little impact he made at, at Ellen Road. Leeds say it won't affect them budget-wise in this window. They say they've, they've got the cash to do what they need to do. But evidently, if they do get hit for it and, and if they do have to pick up the bill in some way, then it's it's going to cost them and it's going to be a waste of money. And there is there is a sort of precedent for this at Ellen Road. They uh, Several years ago, they, they signed Cameron Stewart on loan from Hull. Um, that was a January deal on loan. But at the point where he signed, a little like held a Costa to Leeds last summer. He, he agreed that it would. He agreed a permanent contract at that point and was due to sign in in the summer. And Leeds and Massimo Cellino reneged on that. Decided they didn't like him. He hadn't been good enough. They didn't want to keep him, um, and were ultimately forced to to pay up the contract that they'd agreed. Um, and, and were out of pocket to the tune of about six seven hundred thousand pounds. So. This could get messy, it could get legally messy, and something tells me that, that Leeds are on a bit of a sticky wicket with this one. Hmm. Hey Alex, I'm going to ask you a question now about, uh, well, a kind of broad and long-winded question, probably, about uh, teams with uh, specific and clear tactical identities that are promoted from the Championship. Uh, and I'm asking this on the basis that 
of our discussions about Norwich last summer, around this time, you and I were very bullish that they would uh, that they were an, an excellent team, which they certainly were in the Championship. We thought they'd do well in the Premier League. Um, in fact, some other people that we spoke to uh, also thought the same thing. And then uh, Norwich happened this year. Uh, so uh, what I want to ask you is, uh, when teams are promoted from the Championship up to the Premier League and they have a clear tactical identity, not to say that Leeds uh, are similar to Norwich in a, a stylistic sense, do you think that can hamper them in some cases? Is it harder to to know what to expect in terms of how well that that style will transition up a league? I don't think that's the issue. I think I think there are two problems. Obviously, it's worth saying that Sheffield United were promoted with a clear tactical identity as well and a particularly unusual one and obviously didn't do too badly. So I, I think the issue is more, um, in Norwich's case specifically, they were hampered with injuries to a great degree. And also, that was a very, very young side. And part of the way that they played was was predicated on pace. And once you start having injuries and also have a lot of these quick young players, but who lack the experience, perhaps lack the leadership required, you know, the, the three of that four starting back line were sort of 20, 21 years old. That's when the wheels come off slightly, I think. Sheffield United had more experience they had older heads they had kind of grizzled pros for want of a um, better cliche and and I think you know that that would have helped Sheffield United get through difficult patches but stay within that fixed identity I think that's why I'm not massively concerned about Leeds I mean yes there is a degree to which flexibility is helpful and if things do start to go wrong, having a a style that can be adapted, um, can perhaps be a little more defensive, a little more circumspect is really helpful and Norwich weren't able to do that. But I also think that Leeds have have A, got players of of really high calibre, people like Calvin Phillips, but they've also got people who've been there and done that, like Hernandez, like Luke Ayling, um, Stuart Dallas, you know, people who can bring a degree of experience where if things don't automatically go well straight away, there is enough in the dressing room to be able to kind of coalesce around that, keep that sense of identity, not panic and not get, you know, dragged into something because heads start dropping. I think that was more Norwich's problem than anything else, a combination of injuries and a lack of experience. I was just going to say, I've, I've got a, a few thoughts on this as well. I mean, the, the, the comparison between Norwich and Sheffield United is is a good one, I think. And and I wonder whether, in, in the grand scheme, it has helped Sheffield United that they've been very good under Chris Wilder for a, a very, very long time now. You know, this goes back to League One um, under him and, and they've known what they are as a team, they've known what they are as a, as a tactical unit for for many, many months and, and quite a few seasons. I'm still sort of mildly baffled by where Norwich's form came from last season because we went down there in August, um, two or three weeks into the season, Leeds won 3-0 at Carroll Road at a canter, um, no, no great contest that day. And there was a lot of chatter around about the possibility of Norwich needing a change of manager, you know, that Asaki might be on the cards, that it wasn't quite working out and, and everything else. And, and clearly they came very, very good after that. But I, I suspect that when they went up, they didn't have the same ingrained style and ingrained understanding that Sheffield United did under Chris Wilder, and which I think to de- you know to a greater degree than Norwich Leeds should have under Bielsa. Bielsa has been here for two full seasons now. The tactics have been you know demonstrably the same for two full seasons, and and have worked really really well in the main. The players understand them. The players. Um, seem very, very clued in and, and very happy with them. I mean, I, I was doing the comparison and your know, Leeds have gone up as champions this season with 35 goals conceded. Um, Norwich went up the previous season with 57 goals conceded, you know, way above Sheffield United who finished second. And it's funny because a, a, one of my piece for The Athletic this morning was on the, the subject of, you know, another championship title winning team going to Anfield on the first day of the season for two years running. So how do Leeds avoid the same fate as Norwich, who took a real pasting over there, you know, this time a, a year ago? And and when I started to watch the game back and, and to look closely at what was happening, it 
it was very obvious that tactically Norwich weren't great that day. They they had an issue with Buendia um, as the right hand side of a, a midfield three, um, drifting inside um, away from his flank and and really giving Andy Robertson all the space he needed to attack down the left. And as everybody knows, if you you know if you give Liverpool's fullbacks um, space and time, then then they'll absolutely murder you. And, and that's pretty much what what went on. And and they never seemed to get a grip of that. So I think there was some definite naivety there. And and I just wonder if Leeds might. Be be you know a bit more skilled and a bit more ready and, and perhaps a bit more certain of what it is that they do yeah hey well the athletic.com forward slash defo transfers 40 percent off and you can go and read phil hayes wonderful sounding piece uh we'll put a link to that in the description as well um so you can find that directly uh when we come back we're going to talk about liverpool uh but for now it is our time to say thank you and farewell uh to to phil hay thanks phil hay been a pleasure thank you there he goes the king in the north he's left now uh, so we can be free to talk about Liverpool, who are also in the north. Uh, they did very little last summer, uh, only adding Minamino in January. So there's a, uh, a definite sense here of a, a cycle completed. I should say at this point also that um, we have released a, a Liverpool Sensible Transfers video. So uh, there'll be some crossover, I suppose, between this. We'll try and think of some different picks as well and have a few uh, conversations around it. But if you're interested in watching the full-length video, you can visit the TIFO Football YouTube channel to do so. Uh, and it'll be magnificent, I'm sure. Okay, uh, Nico Williams, Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones probably all be involved more with the first team this season. Maybe Ryan Brewster too, um, although he might be loaned. So let's talk a little bit now on why it's uh, important to supplement this side. It's it's a very difficult thing to do, I think, to 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 maintain and turn over um, a championship team and uh, continue on for the next season. It's why in the Premier League specifically we see very few teams who win back to back back to back Premier League titles. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Alex. Can you just explain to me, where do you begin with Liverpool when you have probably the best team in the league, when the vast majority of positions at your disposal are, are, are very strong? Um, you don't want to bring in players that are going to unsettle the, the dressing room, if that's a thing. Uh, and you, you want to line up replacements for people who might be might be sort of ageing or, or, or getting further on in their career. But at the same time, I don't know how you approach judging the level a prospect versus first team player to to bring in do you have any answers for me i think the key is succession planning um and i think a good model and possibly one that liverpool will look at is the rb leipzig rb salzburg um idea whereby you have a clear identity and style at leipzig and salzburg are expected to kind of grow players that will then potentially be available for a transfer into that system. Obviously, Liverpool don't have a feeder club in the same way, so they'll be looking at, at their, their academy to be able to do that. And I think if you benchmark some of these players, uh, I think Curtis Jones looks particularly interesting. For example, obviously, Nico Williams came in and excelled in that cup game against Everton. Those are players who will be happy to be around the fringes of the first team, squad um they'll obviously learn from that experience they'll be given some cup games that kind of thing i think liverpool made such a strong stylistic change in the first couple of seasons that jürgen klopp was there and supplemented that intelligently with transfers that they are not the kind of club now at this point in time particularly if klopp is going to stay there for a long period who need to bring in massive acquisitions big kind of headline grabbing players to take over from somebody because it's such a system-based team. So it, it's really, really hard because footballers have egos, and I don't say that critically or pejoratively, but you know, if you're joining a club like Liverpool, you're going to be doing it because you want to play. So I think looking around for astute acquisitions who are going to glide into a kind of holding pattern around the first team, be ready to step up, be proficient and and tactically aware and intelligent enough to slot in to what is a clearly defined system. And this is why, for example, the Roberto Firmino role is so important. That's what you're looking for. They're not going to go out and probably spend, you know, 50 or 60 million pounds again for a little while unless potentially it's for a central defender. Okay, uh, just to put it out there, I'd be happy to join Liverpool without playing. I don't know if that's something that the club would be interested in. <laughs> Um, you, you could be, you could be like the Andy Longeren. Yeah, you know, it's certainly something I'd be interested yeah. in. Um, I can 
spruce up the dressing room. I'm a, I'm a friendly, happy character to have around. Good with group dynamics. You know, I can cheer people up when they're down. So just just saying, you know, uh, unlikely, but um, if it's an option, it's an option. What I wouldn't do, though, I suppose, is provide or provoke competition for places. Um, and Seb, I know that you think this is an important uh, aspect for Liverpool uh, when they're considering recruitment at the moment, not just to, to strengthen for the sake of strengthening or to supplement the side. They're not just reinforcements. Um, you think it's important to provoke that competition? I think it is, Joe. I mean, it's all about attention, isn't it? And um, it feels particularly important given that um, having won the Champions League and now having won the Premier League, you could make a case for saying that a lot of these players have have sort of reached the end of a cycle together. And Alex is absolutely right. Socially, it's a really delicate process because, you know, for instance, if um, if we wanted to provoke competition um, on this podcast and we brought on a, a fourth person, it would have to be at the expense of one of us three. And, you know, that, that kind of causes issues with loyalties and friendships. And whilst obviously a little bit different, a football team isn't hugely dissimilar. But you do need to have a... Just because at the very at the very top level, football seems to be decided on tiny, tiny margins. And so if you get players who um, settle for what they've achieved or you know, have even like a, a 2 or 3% regression, then that can have a really detrimental effect on a site, particularly one like Liverpool where cohesion is so important and the, the collective dynamic is, is imperative to the success. So it has to be the right players, has to be the right personality, and it has to be in the right position and the improvement has to be targeted at those players who might be satisfied with their lot in their career already. Um, that probably doesn't refer to the younger ones who, you know, who've still got international caps to win and international tournaments to go to and experiences to have. But, you know, when you start to get to, towards the end of your 20s as a footballer, I imagine you can, you know, get into the habit of just staring at your mantelpiece and admiring your medal collection if you have it, if you have one. So it's, um, it's a tricky old process. Are you happy with your lot, Seb? No, no, no. But I mean, what I would say is just um, picking up on your group dynamic um, effect and and how good you are for for teamwork. (laughs) You did, in fact, send me um, Prosecco. I'm I'm getting married tomorrow, which is Saturday. Congratulations. Um, And you you took the time to send send chocolates to my future wife and uh, Prosecco to... To me, but you also put on it. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your day. Get back to work soon, which I felt sure. was kind of passive aggressive. Sure. Well, you know, listen. <laughs> it was unbranded prosecco. We all know that's the best kind. I'm curious to know how you have decided to attribute the chocolates to your wife and the prosecco to you. I will say that they were designed as a joint gift for both of you to share. Well, so it's, I'm surprised it, that uh, you know. But it's hey. because um, when I opened the uh, the box in which they're in, um, they were grabbed from the box before I could really sure. take. Yeah. The decision was made for you. Yeah, exactly. uh, Alex, I think you were going to make a, a sensible point about football before we interrupted. I was. I was going to try. Um, the Yeah, I, I, I take Seb's point about complacency. I think that there's a lot about the degree to which managers can alleviate that through the way that they manage that group dynamic. I, I think it is entirely plausible that some footballers are like that. I would be very surprised if you had players like that in the Liverpool dressing room because the way Klopp has built a sense of persistent struggle that you know they are moving forwards collectively as, as a squad of players, also as a club in general, to be fair, I don't think there's any room for passengers in that. So I, I think while that might be an applicable point widely, I don't think it's an applicable point to Liverpool. Exactly why I'm not there, <laughs> even if I'm not playing. Uh, let's start then with uh, with some picks, because in this case, uh, Firmino and an understudy for Firmino, this is something that we've talked about before. I think we talked about it in, in January or last summer when we made a, a, a Liverpool Sensible Transfers video. We've done it again um, because it's a very important position and it's, it's not the most obvious uh, replacement. You know, I think, and I think that's why it makes for for interesting discussion. So, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in, in January as a result of the of the pandemic. But there is an Africa Cup of Nations scheduled uh, in in twenty twenty one. So, Mane and Salah will be going if it does happen, which does leave quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of pressure on Firmino's shoulders anyway. Um, as an approach to to replacing him or finding an understudy for him. Alex, how do you go about that? Who are some names and, and how do you think that that January might affect him if if the Africa Cup of Nations does go ahead? Well, Minamino was brought in as that. Um, I think that that was kind of very much the understanding of that. 
Um, I I think the Africa Cup of Nations will be a real headache for them if it does occur and they lose both of those guys. Um, I mean, Elliot could be one to come in there. I suspect what you'd see is an adaptation of style um, where potentially for a period of time you would expect to see two strikers um, or maybe Origi playing on one side, Elliot on the other um, to try and, and, you know, mitigate that but but i would also possibly think that you'd have an expectation that that midfielders that there would be selection changes around the midfield so you'd have a more attacking presence coming out of midfield maybe someone like oxlade chamberlain or kiter if he's fit oh no kiter might probably be gone or tiago alcantara well yeah tiago well no because he's not that kind of player um i just mean from a deeper position progressively speaking yeah but but i'm talking about people who will actually get into the box get in ahead oh, of make runs beyond Firmino and, and score because it is you know it's noticeable how much of the concentration of of goal scoring comes from that front three as opposed to to anyone else i mean in terms of a Firmino replacement it's incredibly difficult i think you're looking probably more at attacking midfielders who can occasionally play as strikers rather than the other way around um, Daichi Kamada, who's at Eintracht Frankfurt, yes, I am mentioning another Eintracht Frankfurt player, um, is an attacking midfielder who plays behind usually a front two, but has scored eight goals, six assists. Um, he is in in the video. I, I think potentially somebody like that who who has who naturally positionally plays in that sort of area is going to be easier to teach to get forwards than it is to be able to get a centre forward to play as more of a, a dropping off. Because Firmino is not a false nine in the classic sense. He's not somebody who drops off to run into space. He's somebody who drops off to link up, to feed balls in ahead and then get in on the box. So I I think you're looking for an attacking midfielder. Kamada seems to fit that bill quite neatly. Um, but then maybe Minamino will, you know, if he's given opportunities, he'll really impress. And I doubt Liverpool are going to have spent a lot of money on somebody who isn't able to fulfil that role because their scouting is so astute. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I'll move on then to um, to centre back position. Dayan Lovren, of course, has been sold. Um, what are your thoughts here, Alex? So um, I think somebody who we were just discussing um, with the great Phil Hay, Ben White. Um, would actually stylistically fit into Liverpool probably better than anywhere else. Uh, he would give them the ability to carry the ball from deep. Uh, he would give them a long-range passing ability, which would free up some of the onus on Virgil van Dijk to be the only one who's doing that, because you can possibly, if you're really good, you can press van Dijk and try and cut Liverpool off at source if they had... A, a similar player in in the right sided centre back slot, which which Ben White certainly can be if he develops at the same rate, uh, then that would give them options. There is a guy who I really like called Johannes Handel, who's at, um, at Austria Wien. He's uh, six foot five. He's only twenty two. He still looks a little bit gawky, as you'd expect <laughs> from a, a player of that height, and he's kind of a bit stringy. But hey. yeah, all right. You're not stringy, mate, are you? Let's be honest. No, that's true. Um, I'm buff. But he, that's what they say. Yeah, no, that's it's all those chest compre- chest compression. No, that's something different. Um, he's uh, he's a very very good progressive passer of the ball. He's actually better at controlling the ball in tight spaces than you'd necessarily expect. Aerially, obviously dominant as as a six foot five player. Ostrovina, quite a progressive side. You know, they play nice football. The, the centre backs are encouraged to to you know spray the ball around or try and look for nice vertical passes up the centre. So yeah, I mean he he's very much an outside shout. It would be a big step up, but as a a twenty two year old who's been schooled well in football and and has the physical capabilities, he's he's somebody that might be worth looking at. Okay, and listen, let's finally talk about uh, Thiago Alcantara. I know we spoke of him already, um, but there would have been a discussion otherwise about a utility midfielder. The transfer seems likely now, um, so if and if that does happen, obviously Liverpool aren't going to add further in that area. You've talked about some of his merits already. How do you think this is going to change the team uh, overall, and will it be you know in a significant way? I think it will be in a significant way. I mean, uh, Thiago currently is used to playing um, as uh, the sort of deeper lying, more creative player in a double pivot, which is what Bayern Munich have been doing since Hansi Flick took over. 
he has played as the deepest midfielder in a three as well, um, where obviously Liverpool have tended to use Fabinho as, as a kind of dynamic screening presence instead. I think what it does is it gives Liverpool an option. Um, you know, Thiago is 29. He has had some injury problems, but he is still absolutely a world-class midfielder. You know, in that position, uh, in that role, he's, you know, he's one of the world's best. Um, I think Liverpool's issue is that, and, they, and they've turned it into a strength, let's be honest, because of the personnel they've had available, but so much of their initial creativity comes from the fullbacks. And what Thiago would allow them to do is either control the tempo of games by having a pivot who is really, really good at taking the ball under pressure, very press resistant as a good midfielder in Germany would have to be, and then switching the play. That would allow them to to get the ball out to the fullbacks without the fullbacks having to be responsible for that early transition in the first instance. He's also astute enough to be able to screen. He doesn't have the physicality of Fabinho, um, obviously, but he, you know, he's an intelligent player. He's good at interceptions. He's good at reading the game. And there would be a more kind of central midfield area to progress the ball forwards to the front three. I could see him linking really well with Firmino dropping off. It means that Liverpool aren't quite so focused on creating chances through the flanks it gives them something different and I think that's the other way to to almost to throw this right back to your question at the beginning about how do Liverpool adapt a a, a championship winning team and a a Champions League winning team is to allow for options when the system is so harmonious and well ingrained that's great but you can figure out ways sometimes of stopping that and having the opportunity to just add creativity in a different position, give yourself different ways to progress the ball forwards, adjust the the balance of the midfield, I, I think it's a very smart move. People will look at somebody of his age and injury record and say, is he worth £30 million? Absolutely he is, I think, yes. Okay. I like the idea of, uh, I mean, you won't be expecting this, so I like the idea of him scrabbling to unmute his microphone. But producer Adonis, do you think Liverpool are going to win the league? Yeah. That's nice. Nice little input there. No editing the pause between my asking the question and you answering. That's that's outlawed. Well, you can't now, can you? Because you've referenced it. <laughs> no. uh, okay, listen, thanks everyone. When we come back, we'll be talking about Sheffield United. Alex, in, our, um, in the editorial version of Sensible Transfers, we picked a goalkeeper. Um, since then, though, United have signed Wes Fodderingham um, and also um, for a very large fee, Aaron Ramsdale from relegated Bournemouth. So where are we going next? I reckon um, a right-sided centre-half, which makes sense actually because Chris Basham is 32 now and uh, his only cover is the 38-year-old Phil Jagielka. He's actually older than me, Christ. Um, so can we have a, a, a <laughs> can we have a younger, younger type to, to compete for that role, please, Alex? Yes, you can. Um, I just quickly say about Ramsdale, I, I'm not wholly convinced by this signing. Oh, explain um, yourself because I really like him. I, I really like him as a goalkeeper, um, but I think Sheffield United are a, a team that, that want a goalkeeper who's really dominant on crosses um, because they they like to be able to have the, the centre-backs thinking about pushing straight up. And Bournemouth, I think, had one of the highest numbers of crosses into the, the penalty area of all teams last season, which is understandable because they weren't very good. Uh, and Ramsdale successfully claimed or stopped an incredibly low percentage of them. Um, He's a very good shot stopper. He's a very promising goalkeeper. But I just wonder if there's a stylistic issue there that, um, you know, he's he's not dominant enough at at coming out and claiming crosses. And that that might be a weakness that that teams can target. That's all I'd say on that one. Um, Centre-halves, I mean, this is really difficult because... Sheffield United have got such a clear identity. Obviously, everybody knows and bangs on about their overlapping centre-backs. But that means, I think, that you're looking for certain kind of characteristics. You want centre-backs that can carry the ball. You want centre-backs, ideally, who are used to some sort of system that is similar. Although, arguably, there are very, very few top-level teams that are doing anything as innovative as Chris Wilder and Alan Niller. 
So I went to Atalanta first, and then I thought that Rafael Toloi is too old. Um, so I discounted that. Um, what I have thought about is a couple of guys at Stuttgart. Um, the reason for this is that Tim Walter, who was the coach of Stuttgart um, before he got sacked, because he's a difficult character, apparently, he encourages his centre-backs to uh, step forwards a lot. So one of them will play a pass uh, and then move up into the midfield space. So he very often leaves like what you call the pivot position, the kind of central defensive midfield position, quite open. So the centre-backs are moving up centrally. Now, that's not the same as what Chris Wilder is doing. But the reason I think it's applicable is that those centre-backs will have been coached in how to move forwards, how to continue passing moves, how to leave their position and not just play a sensible pass and then drop back a little bit for an option. So on the left-hand side, you've got Mark Oliver Kempf, who's someone that we've talked about in Sensible Transfer videos before. Uh, on the right, you've got Pascal Stencil. Now, Stencil's just signed as a permanent, so he wouldn't be available this summer. But as somebody to look for maybe next year, that might well be an option because these are clearly intelligent, positionally astute centre-backs who can be coached into a more kind of attacking role. Uh, if you'll let me just bang on for two more choices, if that's okay. Go on then, go on then. I, I can give you a little bit of time to think if you like and insert a controversial opinion, um, which I've been <laughs> okay. harbouring for, for a couple of months during lockdown. I actually think, just to, to, to kind of further your point about um, how ingrained their identity is, I think Jack O'Connell was one of the outstanding centre-halves last season and I would kind of hope over the next sort of six months or so if his form holds that he gets a chance with England. <clears throat> I, To me, that's not a controversial opinion. Good, um, good I think that's good. just straightforwardly the case. Uh, good, well, we've segued nicely, so let yeah. us have more of your picks, please. Um, so just two more. Um, the first is, is a very niche one. It's a guy called Jurian Maduro, um, who is a centre-back for the Ajax under-19s team. Um, he is only five foot ten, which granted is a bit of a problem, uh, but he is an incredibly elegant passer of the ball. But what really catches the eye is his ability to bring it out. Um, he's also quick, and I think centre backs who are able to carry the ball at pace and break opposition lines with that ball carrying as well as with their passing are the sort of players who could fit in under Wilder. He's only 19 as well, um, so I think there's plenty of scope there to develop and and mould a player into the, the Sheffield United system. Um, the other one, also quite niche, is a guy called Ofri Arad, um, who I really, really like. He's at Makaba Haifi uh, over in, in Israel. Uh, he's 21, he's six foot, he's strong, physical... Again, what catches the eye is his ability to bring the ball forwards. He's got a really, really nice range of passing. He's also a very physically committed defender. He'll throw himself into challenges, not in a stupid way, but you know he will put his body on the line in order to clear the ball or win it back. But when he's on the ball, there's a kind of an elegance there and a desire to bring the ball forwards, to push the attack on. He'll step up into midfield occasionally. Um, there's, there's a really nice footballer there, I think. Uh, and and those are the sorts of profiles that that I think Sheffield United will be looking for. It's not it's not a straightforward, you know. Let let's get somebody in who's good at defending. It's it's a they want to they want to find a player. Almost maybe you'd have to teach them more of the defensive fundamentals, but you want a player who's intelligent, who is progressive, who's looking to take the ball forwards and do interesting things with it. And finding that in the centre-back is really, really tricky. Okay, interesting. Actually, while you were talking, um, big defensive boost for Sheffield United. They've just announced that John Egan has signed a new contract and is committed to the club till 2024, which is good. Um, we'll move on to midfield because um, a couple of things have happened. Um, John Lundstrom's uh, contract impasse remains immovable. I think the club will um, trigger an automatic extension but there is no agreement further beyond uh, that further year. Also, they need more goals. They spent heavily on Oli McBurney. They've got Lise Mousset, who uh, tailed off a little bit towards the second half of the season, but enjoyed a very good first half, so they'll probably persevere with him. Rikario Zif Zifkovic uh, joined in January as well. He was a little bit of a, a punt, but I'm sure um, he had a couple of good moments um, for the end of the season. But we probably need, with Sanderberg signed to, to kind of, 
bolster the defensive half of the midfield. Probably need a few more goals, a little bit more creativity at the midfield's tip. Do we have picks from you, Alex? Yeah, so I, I think Lise Mousset is a really interesting case just to mention briefly. Like His per 90 metrics are insanely good. Um, and with him, it's clearly a question of, of sustained fitness over 90 minutes. So I think if Chris Wilder is able to get him functioning for full matches, they've got a really, really good player on their hands there. Um, it, it's just this kind of tendency to drop off or only be able to play in fits and starts because of fitness reasons. So I think they probably will be able to get more goals out of their strike force in the future. Um, there's a guy at Mainz called Jean-Paul Boetius, um, who I think came up possibly in the last... I think he's come up a couple of times in our last uh, our last few pods. Yeah, so he's he's a really interesting player. Um, he he crops up as, as statistically good for certain things. Um, and when I was... I'm trying to remember what I was looking for, but it was a sort of somebody to come in and play behind... Maybe it was a Firmino replacement. I don't know. But him and Andre Duja, who was at loan at Norwich, but is now back at Hertha Berlin, were two guys who really stood out as as attacking midfielders who were very smart, very, very good at pressing, could weigh in with goals by getting ahead of an attacking line and finishing moves off. Um, Boetius, it's more with his feet. Duda, it's quite often with his head. But also had the ability to play a through pass uh, and to be quite clever with with possession. So either of those two options, I mean, Herta, I think are in a, in a stage at the moment where they're they're probably sufficiently cash rich that they're not going to look to to shift players on unless they have squad building issues. But the fact that Duda was on on loan um, last season at Norwich indicates maybe he's a possibility, and he's definitely better than the player we saw at Norwich. Um, but Boetius is somebody I really like. I think Sheffield United could probably improve their their pressing game a little bit in the the space. McGoldrick's been really good at it. Deeper in midfield, they've been really good at it. But maybe somebody who can come in and and do that and aid McGoldrick if it's him that starts by pressing a little bit higher up the pitch, but also weigh in with goals and creativity uh, would be a smart move. And, and Boetius looks like the guy. So I've got a non-sensible transfer to propose, um, more kind of a, a, a reckless, <laughs> idealistic transfer. So I've been... Um, Ravel Morrison. <laughs> not quite that reckless. Okay. Although I'll be careful because uh, Ravel Morrison follows me on Twitter and I have asked him like four times to come on the podcast. Alas, no joy. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say is that, um, and this is idealistic and I, I know it's going to sound a little bit silly, but over the course of the summer... Um, I've been noticing that uh, the market for David Brooks is a little bit softer than people would have expected. Um, it's a couple of uh, big clubs sort of turning up their nose at him. Um, and David Brooks is a wonderful player, um, really. I mean, I know he's been injured and, and uh, a year out of the game is going to da- damage anybody's standing. But goodness me, can you imagine um, imagine adding him um, back to the mixture that... that um, that already exists there at Bramall Lane. Um, I, I think that's a really intriguing prospect. My my only issue with If you that, could structure financially, like, I mean, so my idea, and this was kind of concocted during the podcast rather than before in any kind of methodical way, but I thought if you could put together some kind of loan which alleviated the risk and said, like, we're, you know, we'll commit to it on the basis that um, there is no sort of alarming second season slump, which I, I really don't think will happen, but um, I'd love to see that. I just think it'd be... Um, he works with Wilder. I think it'd be a wonderful, wonderful addition. And and people people would have said if you said um, back in September the idea of Sander Berg um, playing for Sheffield United would be ridiculous. You know, it's just not going to happen. But you know, there there is ambition there when it's needed. And Brooks is uh, Brooks is brilliant. Anyway, I'm I'm done with that. Sorry. Yeah. No. I I, I think I think Sander Berg was was a transformational signing for Sheffield United in terms of the intent there. I think you know this is a player who's very, very hotly tipped a year ago, who is clearly a talented player. And by acquiring him for a considerable sum of money, Sheffield United were kind of signalling that there there was the potential to move away from the kind of, you know, grizzled pro that we can teach stuff to. That's the second time I've used that expression. Um, and, and towards younger players that are really exciting. 
I think Brooks would fit into that mold. My slight concern with that is that he tends to operate best in the kind of right half space that Ollie Norwood's kind of made his own. So I think there would have to be a degree of tactical flexibility there. But I can also envisage a world in which Brooks plays as as a really attacking 10 off a single striker uh, and that there's less of a kind of clustering in that right half space and Brooks is playing more centrally and using his ball carrying, using his ability to make decisions at pace uh, to, to feed the ball onto other people. If Sheffield United had a good enough single striker up front, if McBurney works out in that role, for example, I think that would be a really, really exciting addition. Um, but I think there would be some tactical tweaks that would be required to make it work. I like it when we all agree. I agree with everything you've said. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening today, dear listener, dear downloader, if you're still with us. Uh, we'll be back in, I don't know, uh, some day's time with more of these things. Uh, we've got about, I don't know, five Sensible Transfers episodes left to get through. And then we'll be back to uh, normal proceedings uh, as of um, September, I believe. So uh, thanks to you, Seb. Thank you, Joe. And to you, Alex. Thank you, Joe. And of course, to producer Adonis. Thank you, Adonis. No, yeah, he's not unmuting himself nothing. this time. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, we'll. Uh... Thanks. Oh, there he goes. There he is. Yeah. There he is. He can't control him, can he? When you want him, he's not there. And then when you don't want him, he just pops straight in. He's like a little ferret. Uh, right. We'll be back soon. And uh, good wishes to. Um, yeah. Good wishes to uh, producer Adonis on his holiday. Goodbye. Goodbye.